happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And I want to welcome you to this week's edition of the EdTech Situation Room. And joining me as always, Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you doing? Good evening. I am doing well and joining as I usually am from Oklahoma City, where it is cool and very fall-like, and I uh, apologize for being a little late. I had a little Wednesday evening date with the wife, and I am happy to still be the technology director at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City, where we are excitedly looking forward to fall break, which always falls on UTOU weekend. So we get the Friday and Monday off for fall break. Excellent. That sounds awesome. So for those of you that are first time listeners, viewers of the Tech Situation Room, let's tell you what it's all about. Once a week, um, Dr. Fryer and I get together and take a look at this week's tech news from an educational technology lens. And one of the things that we enjoy doing is getting together um, uh, to talk about how evolving technology might impact classrooms. And there's a lot of folks to talk about um, uh, technology in the world, but I think the classroom focus is something we're really interested in. And as both longtime educators, we can certainly uh, uh, wax poetically about how this week's news might impact uh, a classroom near you. So we have lots of links this week. And by the way, you can find all of our links, whether we talk about them or not, at our website, edtech sr.com where we do post show notes and interesting bits from um, our shows every single week. So be sure to check there if you want to find out more and get access to the articles that are informing our opinions as we talk about this week's news. So um, Wes, why don't I go ahead and get started this week? Um, there are several interesting bits here and some of these are kind of short bits. So maybe I'll start with that. I'm sure there's a meaty topic or two uh, that we'll get into, but this one's uh, actually a couple of weeks old. Um, and we've kind of kept forwarding it through, but I think it's an interesting topic for us to discuss for at least a moment. But apparently the good folks at Twitter are considering doubling the number of characters available on the tweet platform. Right now, tweets are intended to be somewhat like text messages and that they're limited to 140 characters per tweet. And of course, um, that's been Twitter's trademarks, you know, throughout the many years of its existence. And now apparently they are testing what it, be, what it might be like to double that number to 280 characters per tweet. And of course, that comes with a balancing act because there are plenty of platforms, an unlimited number of platforms that will allow you to publish long form or even medium form text publishing, right? A blog can do that. Um, most certainly Facebook can do that. Uh, Medium is a great place to publish works of, of, of short, medium, or long length for the world to see. But Twitter, to this point, has been limited to that uh, you know, 140 characters. So I guess I'll start here. Wes, both you and I are uh, t Twitter people. We utilize it as a professional development uh, uh, a tool for us and also to connect with one another. In fact, I would argue that one of the reasons why we're friends is because of Twitter. Um, we're uh, not only we're able to uh, connect via there before we ever made a face-to-face -face meeting. It's the way you and I have stayed in touch, even though we only get to see each other usually about a maximum once a year in the face-to-face -face environment. What are your thoughts about Twitter experimenting with longer posts? I think it's a mistake. I don't think it's going to be the end of the world. Uh, another platform to mention that I've dabbled with a little bit, not as much in the last month or so, is Mastodon, uh, which is a federated social networking platform, much um, 
much like, um, Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the, of the Twitter client where, where you've got your stacks of col- columns. Um, but it, like email, anybody can set up a server, uh, and it, it doesn't have that same limit. So, you know, it, it's not the end of the world, but it definitely changes the dynamic. Um, one of the things I frankly enjoy a lot about Twitter is having to, you know, get up, get my ideas broken in, you know, down to, the bite-sized piece and and it's possible right. to put a a one slash two two slash two you know get in multiple multiple um tweets but that's the whole idea of creativity uh, thriving within constraints is uh, very much alive and well with twitter and um yeah i think that what we're talking about here is a fundamental aspect of the service that they're going to tweak and so i don't think it's going to be the end of the world um but i will say from an educational standpoint you know if you set up a classroom twitter account or you know if your students are old enough where they're using twitter on their own um you know i think it's a compelling challenge to think about the ways in which we are able to express ideas in an articulate uh and effective way but do that you know within constraints so not the end of the world but kind of sad and i do think that because of venture capital and the pressure that these companies have to, you know, just keep on bringing in more users and just, you know, have those graphs going up and up and, and bring in the dollars, you know, unfortunately um, they can lose sight of, of some of the most important things, which is what are their use, what's their user base want and what is their user experience. Um, So I, I had, I did gain heart from the Mastodon cloud experience that, you know, there are going to be alternatives and we're going to see things continue to morph. And as we might talk about, I'll drop in some links. We've had several different podcast hosts, you know, go belly up or, or announce that they're going to be discontinuing free services. And so, you know, it, it let's all prepare ourselves. Twitter may not last for forever, um, but it is certainly the number one communication platform for me, uh, right. staying up to date and filtering the web, because as we might talk about with Facebook, one of the issues is, you know, not just being sheep blindly led down the news feed that someone has coded and, you know, remains a, a hidden mystery about how things, you know, are elevated or hidden from you in your feed. And so I think it's a important 21st century skill for us to proactively filter our own information and news streams that we're taking in and Twitter via Twitter lists and Flipboard um is is a is a phenomenal and powerful tool that you know I I hope we have for a, for a long time, but it's probably going to continue to morph and change just like all other technologies do. So it's not going to stay the same. Well, and for me, I, I think the complication here is I do think that the 140 characters can create awkward situations, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, I'm an on again, off again participant in Twitter chats uh, related to education. Montana is a fairly popular one on Tuesday nights. Wyoming. On Sunday nights, Idaho on Wednesday nights, actually during our show, the Idaho Ed Chat goes on. And I, I do drop in there occasionally. Um, one thing I found when trying to discuss things of substance is the 140 characters can diminish nuanced arguments. And something that I certainly appreciate um, about difficult situations is that sometimes in order to be both polite and productive, it does take longer passages and phrases to be able to do that. So I found it's difficult to discuss 
a controversial or a nuanced topic in one of the tweet chats uh, uh, that's related to education, right? And so, you know, to me, that that's something that that would make a longer tweet more attractive. But I tend to be with you, Wes. I think it's it's a bad idea for the platform. And you know, the frank answer for me is that it, it's you know, if you do have something controversial to talk about, then maybe Twitter's not the place to do that, right? Like it it changes the nature of the platform to a point that becomes very difficult for it to define what it is, right? We already have email. We already have, you know, Google Plus and Facebook, which, you know, allows unlimited size posts, which means that you can, you know, essentially go to town there. And if you're that interested in Twitter, Twitter as a, a discussion medium based on complex topics, perhaps you should be on medium, right? That is a, a, a short medium or, or, or long form publishing house that you can log in via Twitter and then add comments via uh, uh, essentially using your Twitter account to do that. But yeah, I tend to agree with you with the notion um, that it would change the nature of, of the, the platform, uh, maybe not for the best. And we've mentioned this before, how in a Twitter chat, you know, it's sort of a, an echo chamber, or it can really tend to be that way because it's very easy for everybody to say, oh, yes, coding, it's so great and it's wonderful, and here's example, example, example. Right. But when we want to talk about something substantive yep. that we're going to have some disagreements about, Exactly. Much more challenging to do that. And, and you know, that's a good lesson too, right? Every medium is not going to lend itself to, to every kind of communication. So, you know, that's, that, that's an important thing to help students with too. I mean, that, I've been struck by that yes. just recently thinking about how important it is for me as a technology director to help our teachers be more connected and to be continual learners is how much literacy are we missing out on if we're not participating in you know, interactions on, on social media, right. aware with Wikipedia, with editing, there's just a whole dynamic world of communication going out. And I think that, you know, we, we need to help students prepare for that, not only uh, professionally, but, but personally as well. I mean, I'm not going to go into depth with personal stories, but I mean, just, just with our, our kids and, and the choices that are available and the access that they have, uh, you know, not necessarily like with Tinder and those apps, but just with text messaging, you know, we we live in a world fraught with many, many more choices. And we tend to think about that as just being good, you know, choice, good, but choice also challenge, choice hard, you know, because if you have to contend with, you know, if, if you just got more decisions to make, uh, you know, there are probably b- bigger and higher cognitive loads on our brains today simply as a function of choice. You know, walk into Starbucks and get overwhelmed because, you know, you're going to have to pick among 50,000 drink choices what it's going to be. Right. Yep, absolutely so. Okay, where to next, sir? Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the... Uh, the Kaspersky scuff. Uh, you dropped in the BBC article from October 11th. Israeli spies watched Russian agents breach Kaspersky software. Um, I think I'll drop in a New York Times article that I had read this morning, which for, for folks who are not aware, um, you know, Kaspersky is one of several different companies out there uh, selling antivirus software. And from both a personal and an enterprise school level, you know, security should never be about one thing. It should always be about layered defense and multiple things that you've got in place to try to prevent and, and, and hopefully stop the bad guys from, you know, getting into whatever you're trying to protect. And then also, um, you know, mitigating and, you know, de- identifying and being able to deal with problems. 
So Kaspersky um, happens to be the antivirus that we have at our school. And in September, the federal government announced that all federal agencies were to discontinue the use of Kaspersky within 90 days. And that was because of suspected hacks that have happened. And so what the, the New York Times article talked about, and I think this BBC article as well references, is some more insight that we have. We still don't know, and of course, there's tons that's classified that we will not you know, full, fully know, but even if we had access to the classified data, pretty murky stuff. But apparently, you know, Kaspersky does a very deep level scan of your system and hackers were able to take that sort of roster or list of files and then cherry pick things from intelligence officers and, and, and people in the intelligence community that they that they wanted to to copy. Um, the New York Times article is interesting because it says the way this was discovered was because of and they they identified the thumbprint of an Israeli company, the same one which we believe developed Stuxnet. And Stuxnet is the most advanced cyber weapon ever developed in the history of the planet to date. It's the one that was developed, we, we believe, jointly between U.S. intelligence and Israeli intelligence to this, to uh, temporarily destroy the centrifuges in Iran for their nuclear thing. Anyway, that same company that's like, we're talking super high-tech, you know, Israelis, um, identified and saw in Kaspersky and in their files. And so Kaspersky's come forward and said that, yes, this happened. But what we don't know is whether it was willful compliance. If, if uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of, of Russia is able, as many suspect he can to tell these companies, Hey, you need to help the homeland, you know, and they were knowledgeable about it or whether they were hacked themselves. But Kaspersky looks like they are probably done. Uh, the federal government of the United States is finished with them as a school tech director who is, you know, still in a multi-year contract with Kaspersky. I've been watching this. I don't think that we have the, you know, we're not, we're not the target politically, um, you know, and intelligence wise, um, and and I have not read anybody consumer reports, you know, like that saying to all consumers and companies dump Kaspersky. But it does show, I think, how dynamic the security environment and landscape is, um, how important it is to have a layered defense and, you know, how all of us, you know, can secu security is not absolute. And, and just as, you know, any home or any building in, in any place can be broken into with folks that have the, the means and the motivation and the time to do that. And, you right. know, the same thing is true digitally. And so that's obviously been a running theme here. So do you run antivirus, uh, Jason? And any any thoughts on, on what we've seen happen here with Kaspersky and the revelations there? Yeah, I you know the one thing the one thing I would think that Kaspersky's got going for them is is that I tend to trust is probably probably a strong word here, but I tend to give some of the big corporations a benefit of the doubt on these sort of things because they have to realize how dangerous this would be to their business. And if if Kaspersky is not already experiencing a dramatic decrease in their U.S. based business, I would imagine today's revelations would definitely change that. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that, you know, and, and we, we actually have a, a number of links we, we've, some of which shared, some of we've not over the last couple of weeks about that there's just a lot of risk when you install third-party software, period, right? Like the operating systems themselves are are insecure to a point to, to be concerned about, but there definitely seems to be an uptick in stories related to people utilizing you know, everything from you know, we, the, the, the Sea Cleaner app that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that had been hacked and, and aimed uh, some pretty interesting uh, hacks towards large major corporations 
to Kaspersky, which has apparently been a platform for hacking, um, you know, that, that they, that other, uh, uh, intelligence agents from other countries spotted Russians using the software, like as part of their own spying. Like, you know, you can't, you know, it, it, it's, it's like a Lacare novel in, in the 21st century, right? It's a, it's a pretty extraordinary piece, but it, I, it does, it does, should give you pause, right? And I think that's part of, I don't want to say we're in a tech dystopia because I, I don't think that's the situation here, but I do think we're, we're starting to get more and more and more idea that these incredibly powerful tools that we've invited into our lives, right? And sometimes cases have wiggled their ways into our lives. There's more here than meets the eye, right? It's not all, not all uptick. And I think we've talked about it in terms of student savvy, right? But we, we just need to be cautious about these things and not you know, bury our heads in the sand, even if you know, that, that's our first inclination. And I heard someone say a number of years ago, I'm not attributing this well, that as more and more people come online, the online world looks more and more like the world, right? Yeah. It's not just a limited, you know, area where, where just a few folks and geeks are hanging out, the long tail or whatever. You know, we've got a majority of people today. There was a Pew Internet. I think we had this in the, in the show notes maybe last week. Um, you know, like 70 something percent of adults in the United States today get their news from social media. I mean, it's not the, the days of your newspapers delivered and, and that's the, and, and the network news comes on. That's the way we all get our news that th those days are done. So, um, I think that, um, it's, it's important for us to, um, you know, keep, keep the, keep the pulse of, of what's happening with all this. And, uh, we, we definitely, we definitely need to be taking security seriously at a personal level and an enterprise level. And, and I am excited to say that we're doing well at school with our move to have everyone on two-step verification. I actually got to work with our headmaster today and, and get him transitioned. And after our break, we're going to be meeting with everybody at our high school to kind of go through stuff. And, you know, that, that by the end of December, that's a requirement at our school, that you're a Google school. and Everyone's going to need to have two-step verification. And then we're helping people with their password management. But it's, it's the new normal. And a lot of it is because we live in a, in, in a world, in a world filled with darkness. All right. My kids just told me not to talk like that. Um, <laughs> You know, it's, we all can live in bubbles and we kind of do, but now that we're all living online together, um, the, the, the problems that it, a lot of folks have just not realized how hostile this, the security environment and the fight for your personal credentials, your computing capacity, all of those things are. And I think we're continuing to have that brought to the forefront. So, hey, if you're in the technology world, I think you're probably going to, you're going to have a job in the future, especially if you're going to the area of, you know, cybersecurity. Yep, absolutely. So couldn't agree more. Okay, let's see. I think it's my turn now. So um, here's kind of a, a, I, maybe a, a, a follow up on something we talked about so quite some time ago. Um, uh, Neverwhere announced today that they are accepting. Series B funding, so they're a startup, which means that they're getting investors. Series B funding means a second round of funding to help their uh, cloud-ready tool. And uh, to remind uh, listeners that may have not heard our discussion about this, I think it was about a year ago or so, uh, Neverware is a company that w was started on the foundation of taking old computers and refurbishing them, particularly in the education environment. And they released a tool about two years ago that's, that's pretty amazing. It's called Cloud Ready. And Cloud Ready 
is a version of Chrome OS. They take the open source version of Chrome OS, which is called Chromium OS, and they repackage it to make it, make it easily installable on 200 plus different models of computers. And um, I put a link in our show notes this week to a blog, or, blog article I did over a year ago on the, the cloud ready product. But basically I uh, purchased two old laptops uh, that, that were well, well past their prime and uh, turn them into very effective and speedy Chromebooks. Well, they're not really Chromebooks. They're Chromium OS devices or cloud-ready devices, but they work functionally like Chromebooks and was able to use them for for both uh, uh, creativity and productivity in that way. And cloud-ready is a, it, 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 it's a free tool to individuals. It costs a bit of money to license it for schools, but it's a great way to take old and aging hardware and make it essentially, you know, very modern-day usable again using that Chromium OS. Well, they announced today that they have additional funding, this time from Mother Google herself. Uh, Google was the lead investor in the second round, which it's really interesting to me that that's the case, because that tells me that, um, you know, Google recognizes the power in this model first. But second, they don't believe this takes away from um, their own Chrome OS devices. And so very interesting stuff. Um, I think that if you do have uh, access to older corporate um, off leases or a state warehouse that has older computers and you're looking to put as many computers in students' hands as possible, uh, never, never, never wears cloud ready product could be very, very interesting um, to, to provide some, some pieces to that. So um, first I should say, Wes, uh, have you tried cloud ready yet? We did dabble with it just a little bit, but I'll admit that given the limited number of staff that we have and just all the things that we have to do, right. um, it's a little bit, it's, it's kind of, it's like it is a Unix sort of installation. And I, Miguel Gulen got me to dabble in Ubuntu and, you know, set that up on some systems and, and dabble, but you've got to be ready to be in the weeds with the command line and, you know, just do some finagling. I, although I'm, I think it's better, but it's, um, yeah, we're in a fortunate situation where we can retire, you know, some aging uh, Chromebooks and, and pass those on to other schools and, and pick up some new ones. So it's something that we looked into, but we're not we're not pursuing at this point. But like everything else, it's continuing to march on. So I'd I'd love. I, did you have you encountered some schools that have widely deployed that in your research? I have not. About, in fact. Never- one of the challenges to me with the thing has been is I've advised that a lot of people look into this, but I, I don't know of any districts that have, have, have widely implemented. It's lots of experiments there, but um, apparently enough to keep them going. And they did announce today too, that, that the series B is going to be focused on trying to expand cloud ready in the enterprise, which is not surprising to me at all as maybe a, a, a way to use older computers in an organization to still make them viable. But I think the exciting for, thing for me is, and, and at some point, um, I think we may have mentioned this uh, uh, last week or the week before, but we're probably going to have a, an episode sometime in the relatively near future where we're going to talk about Chrome OS. Uh, there was a, uh, an interesting article from Gary Steger um, uh, released over Medium a few weeks ago that, that really calls Chromebooks out um, as as perhaps not the the savior that they're oftentimes made uh, to be, especially uh, from from vendors that are trying to sell those devices to schools. Um, I think Wes and I would have a different take on that. Um, and, and the, the, the functionality, and I, I'd like to hear us talk about it, both from the standpoint of an IT director in the case of Wes and, a, um, I'm not sure how you describe me, a nerd. 
um, uh, to, to kind of look at the, the pieces, right? But the, the bottom line is, is that it, it, it is an easy way to, or yet another option for school that wants to put more devices in more students' hands to do that. So, uh, yeah, so keep an eye out. I think there's a lot of interesting pieces there. And I, I wish uh, Neverwhere the best of luck. It's it's one of the most uh, amazing products I've seen um, in, in the last two or three years in regards to giving uh, schools real options to expand uh, opportunities for students. I want to give a shout out to our chat room. We've got Peggy George joining us from Arizona and Ben Wilkoff from Colorado. And so, yay, Ben, he's back. I was just mentioning him to my wife when we said we had the show and she she reminded me that no one watched. I said, yes, but Peggy and Ben are sometimes here. So thank you for joining us. And if anybody is tuning in live, um, we do have the chat room available on our YouTube link. The best way to get that is to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Um, and then the chat is over to the right. And if, like me, you want to make that larger, I just uh, click the little three dots and pop that out and then make that in a larger window. So glad to have them with us and feel free if you're in the chat um, to drop in some uh, links. We can knight you with the ability to do that. And uh, Peggy actually did drop in a link that I just added to the show notes. I love these kind of articles. This is from August the 31st from the World Economic Forum. What happens in an internet minute in 2017? And so it's got a nice uh, clock-like graphic, you know, showing, you know, this is in 60 seconds, 900,000 Facebook logins, 16 million text messages, 4.1 million YouTube videos viewed, 342,000 apps downloaded, you know, 46,200 posts uploaded. And when you see these kind of, of, uh, visualizations, oftentimes infographics or, you know, Google had one that was very clever with animations and things like that playing in HTML5 that I, I use for presentations for a while. You know, certainly being overwhelmed is one of the things that that you can respond with. But I think also, you know, we need constructive skills. We, we, when I was work, work for AT&T, I learned a term called the exo flood. And there've been articles, right, about the coming exo flood. And exo is like this super huge number, you know, beyond giga. And, you know, it's like Yodabyte. If, if you look up these things, it's, it's a massive flood of data coming, you know, as video, you know, goes online and things go high def and, and all of this. So Jason, how do you, how do you respond to a graphic like that? And how do you filter that for an audience of educators beyond the we're overwhelmed? Ah. Well, I think part of it is that I think it's owning owning the overwhelmness, right? Like I think if you're no one's got a handle on this stuff, and I think we need to be okay with that for for a bit, right? I think what's not okay is burying your head in the sand and and, and saying that you know like it's it's so overwhelming. I'm not gonna you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to engage in those issues. And in fact, you know, we, we talk about this sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, almost every week, but, you know, the, the, the social media factors that impacted the 2016 election, the perception that um, both our political and social realms are being infiltrated by less than positive interests that are utilizing social media to do that. Like that, part of the reason why that's the case is because people, you know, weren't informed, right? That's a, a question of being engaged and informed and, um, you know, and, and, and keeping those things in mind as you're using these particular tools. So, yeah, it's it's a very complex environment that we live in, but we need to continue to work together. We'll never have a full understanding of it at the speed these tools are advancing. But that's OK. We just need to be committed to working together and relying on our colleagues and having discussions like this. Right. I mean, Wes and I happen to turn on YouTube once a week and have a discussion like this. But it's this kind of stuff 
that I think needs to be going on in schools, right? Like people keeping an eye on things, uh, working together with, with your know, critical friends groups and other people to push one another. And then you know, making those activities, uh, uh, an important piece of, of the classroom environment. It's, it's absolutely pivotal. And I don't know that I've, I've made that connection as much, but our, our, uh, headmaster of our school, we have an admin meeting usually every two weeks. And this last one, we just had people go around the room and check in to kind of show, you know, just to tell a little bit about a project they're working on or something that's going on. We need time to process. And, and we've heard, if you've been privileged to hear, you know, Ian Jukes, Alan November, you know, Will Richardson, I mean, different people, you know, who are pretty effective at times with a, a shock and awe presentation about the world changing and, and how, what are we going to do? How are we changing it? Or not how are we changing it? How are we responding to this change? Um, that's a that's a that's an important reason to gather together uh, at conferences to have chances to process change and you know looking at a graph like that and saying so what you know what does that mean does that mean anything for me I won't I heard of a of a teacher this past week who you know um, was was talking about how they had been teaching the same thing for nine years and they were just they were sticking with it you know and it hasn't changed and I'm you know. We need we need to be looking at our practice and looking at what we're doing and the things that are happening in the environment, um, you know, should have an impact on the kinds of of experiences and opportunities we're giving students to to learn and interact and for ourselves as well. So. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, um, go ahead. Uh, let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. This one's a really quick one, but I did think it was interesting. Uh, Microsoft has finally confirmed that Windows Mobile is dead, um, which is something that was kind of been true for a year or two. Um, there were some interesting uh, devices released. It was either earlier this year or late last year that, that had Windows 10 Mobile on it, but um, I think it was via Twitter and a couple of discussions, a couple of people on that team have said it's dead. Um, I, I was never a Windows Phone user, uh, Wes. I do not believe you were a Windows Phone user. Um, although I believe you had discussed that there's someone uh, that you're on your staff that utilized the the desktop component to it. That you plug the phone into a desktop and it turns into a desktop computer. Absolutely, yeah. I was going to say, Bill. We heard Bill Gates uh, is is not using the iPhone because, of course, he's banned all iOS devices or did at one point in his in his household. Uh, but he's using an Android phone, so that's a sign of the times. But yeah, uh, Tommy Snyder is uh, our our uh, debate coach and part time IT support person, and he just loved Windows Phone, and he's. It's, he's probably an outlier. I, I bet we would be hard-pressed, and, and we'll ask our chat room if they know anyone in their life who has been a Windows phone lover. But but this is impressive because he demonstrated it, you know, being able to take yeah. your phone and plug it into an HDMI monitor and keyboard, and off you go. I mean, that probably is a bit of a, you know, what look at the future because, you know, we're going to need to, to have input devices that, are obviously efficient and, you know, we're comfortable with and familiar with, and, and the keyboard is going to live on for quite a while, I think. I don't, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. But it was pretty stunning to think about that kind of a capability where it's like sort of don't, don't underestimate the small screen, you know, because the small screen can now drive, you know, the big screen. And we've actually uh, had some great successful experiments with 
Chrome bits at school. We're switching our mm -hmm. digital signage. And this is an $80, essentially, Chrome box. Mm -hmm. But it looks like a huge flash drive. But it's got a USB, or sorry, it's got an HDMI on the end of it. So that just sticks right into your television. And then on the end, there's a spot to plug in one USB. And you can have your keyboard and, and mouse and everything like that. And so, yeah, uh, the the power that a small package can deliver today is is pretty pretty stunning. But I think... I don't know. I think I mentioned this last week that it really hit me, especially with the Google announcements, that both Apple and Microsoft are going to, I think, be hard pressed to win in 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 this AI first world, if that's what Sundar Pichai, you know, says, and it's correct. And Amazon and and Google are really the ones to try and catch because of how much information and data you know that that they're fed. So I'm not counting them out, but yeah, it's gonna. We've we've seen Microsoft do some very interesting pivots recently where they're really embracing the cross-platform nature. They're they're putting out I think some very good apps for iOS and and they're not, you know, handicapping uh, I think non-Windows users to the degree they did in the past. But no morning right. for me. However, I still do need to pick up a burner phone for Egypt here in a few weeks, and I bet I could get a good deal on a Windows phone if I was going to try to shop for one. Yep, absolutely so. And in fact, I bought a used one a couple of years ago, dirt cheap. Uh, There's a, a and it was one that was supposed to be updated from Windows Phone 8 to Windows 10, and then when there wasn't a big adoption of it. They dropped a bunch of phones off the convert list and the one I had purchased, and it was for well under $50. Uh, um, uh, it was ultimately dropped off that list, but I, I liked the platform. I thought it was interesting and snappy and uh, great, but, of course, the problem with that platform was that, you know, iOS boasts well over a million apps. Android boasts well over a million apps, and there are, I think, hundreds of thousands of apps in the Windows Mobile Store, but nothing people really wanted to download because the vast majority of advanced app developers, including commercial app developers, never jumped on the platform. Apparently, Microsoft was paying uh, developers to to add on Windows Phone versions. At one point, they had actually uh, committed their own staff to working with larger groups that, that uh, naturally would have an app on every available platform to do the programming and maintaining for them, and they couldn't get developers to come over. And I think that's, uh, I think you're right, Wes, that it may not have an immediate impact because it appears that Microsoft is really interested in supporting both Android and iOS with good apps. Um, and I have to say, I, I feel like in the last year, the quality of, of Windows apps, both the Office-based apps, and then um, they have some uh, interesting project apps. One of them is called Microsoft Lens, which is a scanner app. It's really well done. It's a it's a fine scanning app. But they, you know, it 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 really has been about those two platforms, and I think it's going to give them uh, uh, or hurt their edge um, ultimately in the end. So I'd like to uh, go to a couple links that I've just kind of dropped in below above our Geeks of the Week. And this has to do with free podcast host hosting services going away. And my wife, for the last three years, I think, at least two, but I think three years, has been uh, doing a classroom podcast with a wonderful little app called Opinion. And it's great because you can not only record, you can edit and trim and have a little audio bumper and then they did the hosting for free. And so um, this is an example of Twitter and how phenomenally important it is in my learning uh, that Joe Dale, and you can 
Follow him on Twitter at Joe Dale, J-O-E-D-A-L-E, uh, lives on the Isle of Wight in the UK. And he is a major, you know, podcasting audio guy, works a lot with, um, with, with, um, second language, with, uh, in- English language learners. And anyway, uh, he had tweeted, um, on August 9th <laughs> that, um, audio boom or which used to be audio boo. And I've got like over 200 different, you know, audio files there, um, is ending its service as of December 1st. And then I also dropped in the post about, um, well, it's just from opinions FAQ that as of November 1st, they're ending. So I don't know, um, if, if you've experienced this, Jason, but I have lost content on websites that have gone dark and I didn't get my stuff off of them. And actually that happened with Apple with mobile me, I think, you know, like five years ago or however long, you know, that happened. So it is a sign of the times. Um, but uh, as I'll share in the geek of the week, there's some really good alternatives to look at. So ha- have you had some bad experiences with, with web 2.0 tools going dark that, that you loved and, and said, Oh my gosh, I, I didn't get that cop, you know, saved off, off web. Yeah, a lot of it for me was losing stuff that it's it's been seven years now since I've been in a high school classroom, and that's that's a long time for tools, right? And I've there have been times when I've looked for stuff that I know I've, I've hosted, and we'll go back and look through you know links I've saved to try to find stuff and find the tool X, Y, and Z is as has uh, been eliminated. And that's part of the reason why I, I'm really been glad that both Office 365 and Google Drive have extended. Their, their kind of general power, right? Because I feel like I can store things there and there's going to be a somewhat of a permanence there. But it goes back to the natural reason why it's problematic to utilize free Web 2.0 tools, right? Like I, I'm less concerned, not because I'm not concerned about the issue, but because I feel like that this is now a, a part of the mainstream that the privacy issues, um, uh, uh, FERPA, SIPA, and all of the tools that regulate uh, data in regards to our students is starting to, to, to really make a big difference in the way Web 2.0 tools aimed at classrooms collect that data. So I think that's a concern that, that's being well attended to. But the other piece is that, you know, there is definitely examples of tools. The one that I remember most specifically was there was an old video editor called JCut that uh, the year I experimented with a paperless classroom, that was our my students' go-to video editor, right? We were on a, a series of old Windows machines that, that they couldn't run any of the modern pieces. We did have a modern web browser that worked just great, and we used JCut to edit video, and that, that, that went away. Um, and I think that's, you know, like that, that's the problem, right? Like it's, you know, it's, it's good while it lasts, but unless you can find economic models, um, you know, those tools won't stick around or they're going to be so inundated with advertising. It may not be a great user experience. Uh, ben Wilkoff has in the chat, the only thing he's seen that really works for free podcasting right now is a workflow from YouTube. If YouTube goes away, we'll all be in trouble. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we're kind of modeling that here on the EdTech Situation Room. I mean, we we do our show here on YouTube Live, um, download a 360 uh, uh, P version, you know, that we can can share. At, you know, we're using Amazon S3 as our host, but we wouldn't have to. I mean, we could just simply, you know, have the YouTube videos up there and, and ask people to, to watch them. But I've, since, what, 2005 when podcasting was you know, gone, went mainstream, you know, I've, I've enjoyed taking my audio with me. And of course now you could be connected more and don't necessarily have to have it offline. But my, my, uh, idea 
life, the life of the mind is hugely influenced every week by podcasts and what I take in. So fortunately there are a lot of different alternatives, but I will say that I think it's going to remain, you know, more in, in the area, in the, uh, the realm of the geek because it's, you know, it's going to take some more steps or you're going to need somebody else in your, uh, you know, sphere of, of life that is going to take care of that, the technical pieces of that. Cause, um, you know, we're, things are getting easier, but, you know, relying on Facebook or, you know, any, any kind of company to maintain your content, it's, it's important to have things backed up and, you know, have, have an eye for where your, where your content is. Um, audio boom, particularly, I mean, there's stuff that, that our youngest daughter, you know, did when she was five and six years old. She's 14 now. And it would, I would be seriously bummed if I lost that stuff forever. There's been a few of those things we've captured and put on YouTube because we think probably YouTube is going to be around for a long time, but yeah, it's just kind of a, kind of a sign of the times. Absolutely. So, um, I do want to mention, uh, cause the article is in our show notes, uh, Pew research, September 29th, 2017 from TV to Twitter, how Americans get their news now. And, uh, the, the, um, Pew internet research is definitely a fantastic, um, source for studies, especially as they regard technology. But this is uh, coincidentally a podcast. So this is episode 12 of the Pew Charitable Trusts, uh, podcast series and, uh, really enjoyed listening to this. And so from their studies, uh, 67% of adults in the United States today report that they get at least some of their news on social media. And so, They've got a link to the actual study as well as as some other things. And kind of similar to what Peggy did as far as what happens in a digital minute, um, journalism.org they, uh, have a, has a link there to the digital news fact sheet. Um, and according to them, 9 in 10 adults, 93%, get news online, either via mobile or desktop. The online space has become the host for the digital homes of both legacy news outlets and new born-on-the-web news outlets. So, again, it begs the question, what are we doing in school, right? If we're just teaching journalism the way we did it 10 years ago, you know, we're, we're, we're not serving the kids. And I don't see that happening very much with journalism teachers. You know, I, I think there's some other arenas perhaps we end up getting kind of stuck in our lane a, a little bit more. Um, are you... When was the last time you picked up a, an actual newspaper, Jason, and read it? Um, actually, the answer is Sunday, but it wasn't because it's my regular practice, but because of of of, of circumstances beyond my control. There, I was in an area and and bored, and 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 a newspaper was in front of me. But um, you know, the the only time I really like a paper newspaper or paper magazine is when I'm camping. And one of the reasons why is because there's no internet and I feel like I read it more comprehensively than I would be otherwise. Like it's my and, own internal experiment about distraction. And it's a great fire starter after you're done. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got that like, <laughs> yeah. It's got an instant recycling appeal. Um, but you know, and, and part of it, like w- one of the reasons why I don't subscribe to a newspaper is because it's, it, it for me, it's a paper waste, right? Like if you've ever, if you've ever subscribed to a anything beyond a, a tiny newspaper and then saved it in your garage to recycle it, it's shocking the amount of paper that shows up on your doorstep um, if you subscribe to a newspaper in 2017. I, I can't imagine, for example, uh, very briefly in college, I subscribed to the New York Times um, uh, Sunday edition and found that after 
four or five months that the the paper was was shocking. Uh, the stuff that was stacked up in in my garage. Uh, that's would be I th- imagine I- incredible in 2017 if you did the seven days a week New York Times uh, subscription and then kept the newspapers to recycle. It would be you know feet and 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 feet, and feet um, after a year of that. So I you know I for better or for worse um, you know I'm 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 digital subscriptions only. I, the one thing I would mention though that has been a change for me is that I've really tried to subscribe to publications I read regularly. Like even if I don't need it to access the content. Content. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the local newspaper in Missoula, Montana are all things I'm subscribing to now, partly because I think it's critical to fund journalism in 2017. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, can uh, will you do a request? Um, the article about um, the Dropbox. Um, remember Dropbox? Dropbox's quest to win your heart and Wall Street's too. Uh, CNET from October 3rd. Yeah. So, so, uh, first and foremost, um, I guess I, I still purchase a Dropbox account. I spend a hundred dollars a year for an advanced Dropbox account. And the reason why I do so is because, um, it permanently keeps everything I've deleted from that Dropbox, right? Um, every, every file that I've ever deleted out of Dropbox is still available to me, even though I've been using Dropbox for nearly a decade now, because they have unlimited retrieval of deleted files uh, if you buy a pro account, right? What? Like, I didn't, I didn't know and that. so, you know, there have been times when um, I used Dropbox for a year or two in context of my day job, and then Google Drive went from being okay to super great. So uh, my life is now almost entirely dominated by Google Drive. But what's been very interesting to me is that, you know, I I basically pay $100 a year to hedge my bets if I need to find old files. Uh, if I had to go back into a classroom, that would be almost completely uh, invaluable to me because um, there is a lot of stuff from, for, you know, when I organized all my files and dropped them off. What's interesting to me is that in an era where, um, you know, Google Drive and Office 365 and the OneDrive product that plugs into that, those provide fairly effortless and dirt cheap uh, access to storage. But Dropbox is still managing to innovate really interestingly and well. They have wonderful Office plugins that allow live collaboration on Office tools. Um, they Their versioning is, in my opinion, way better than anything available on the other cloud-based platforms. Um, I'm not quite ready to jump back again and make that, you know, my primary cloud storage because I'm so invested in the Google properties. But it is really interesting that Dropbox is continuing to to innovate and trying to get funding. Like I think that's a uh, um um I it's it's interesting to me that they are 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 continuing to try to make plays in light of how common and cheap cloud storage is in 2017. Yeah. And that speaks to something we've mentioned before in the context of T Mobile and AT&T and, you know, just competition, uh, it, it is great to have other players, you know, in, in the market and continuing to see innovation in the cloud storage and, and uh, cloud space. So, by the way, um, what do you guys offer at the Montana Digital Academy as far as, like, online classes to learn about? Can people learn about Amazon S3 or learn about, you know, spinning up stuff on, on cloud-hosted services or even like WordPress? I guess you probably do web design. Is that, is that right? We do. 
we do we do offer a web design class and a computer science class. Actually, a couple of computer science classes now, including an AP class and uh, a class that's popular in Montana that was initially developed by a Montana State University professor called the Joy and Beauty of Computing. They have a second version now called Joy and Beauty of, of Databases. Part of what is interesting about that to me is that we we don't have a lot of kids taking our computer science classes, and so um, you know what computer science is one of the things that um, I put in the category of I get how important it is, I understand the necessity of it in schools, but I do think that for for factors that I think have to do with marketing. Um, adults are still more excited about it than kids are. Um, I think the same kids that would be excited anyways end up taking our offerings there. And I'm hoping that once some of the students that are exposed to more STEM content in the K-8 environment make it into, you know, uh, 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 today's or, or tomorrow's high schools, that that's going to mean an increased interest for those courses. But so one of the things we've been challenged with as part of the context of my day job is that we just don't have mass mass students knocking our doors down looking for extended computer science content. So I'm hoping that some of the STEM efforts in the K-8 schools across Montana, there's been an extraordinary effort um, on the part of schools big and small to put more STEM content in front of, of, of students. Um, but that's been a very interesting uh, a phenomenon to me is that, you know, it's it, it hasn't been a if you build it, they were they will come situation for us. Um, we get enough to justify keeping the courses around and continuing to develop and tweak and, 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 and create great experiences for kids. But it hasn't been the mass appeal that we had hoped. Hey, shout out in the chat room to Marta, who is tuning in from Tegucigalpa, Honduras. So, you know, we love our audience and we thank you for being here. So Marta is saying, asking if anybody has uh, tried files anywhere. I, is that was that is that iOS 11 or is that something else? I don't know what that is. Do you know what file files anywhere? I don't. OK, we'll have to get a link. Um, I'll do a fast one, uh, and then maybe if you want to take one of the, the big data and AI, we're, we are approaching the top of the hour, but we did start a little bit late. Uh, so here's your uh, This Week in Genomics from the very well-known Genome Genome Magazine, which I'm sure we all subscribe to in both paper and digital, uh, from October 2nd, 2017. FDA approves first gene therapy for leukemia. And so, again, we're in this world where we've got all kinds of potential for genomics and genetic modification to bring in the era of Frankenstein uh, or and, and the, you know, the killer killer death virus. But we've also got amazing stories like this. So uh, cancer treatment, uh, first pediatric uh, case ever to receive this experimental genetically modified T cells to treat a life threatening form of leukemia. And three weeks after treatment, Treatment, cancer was gone, complete remission. She's a happy and healthy 12-year-old. Um, wow. Uh, we're have, we've had some interesting conversations at school. I don't know if we've we talked about this with the 23andMe. Did I tell the story about one of our teachers whose who's, uh, grandmother was supposed to be Cherokee, but it didn't show up in the, in the test? No, that's interesting. Yeah, so his, it's either it's either his great-grandmother or his grandmother uh, is a, a full-blooded Cherokee. But that did not that did not show up in his results. So, you know, either someone in his family didn't tell him something that, you know, adoption or something like that, or there was a mistake or an error. And so he's working on some other members of, of his family. Uh, I think one of his daughters uh, who's done that to to share her results and, and be able to find because there's a way with 23andMe where you can release your results. Um 
kind of publicly so that if you're a close match for someone else, then they can actually identify you and find out who you are. Um, so I'm not facing, you know, these kinds of issues as far as decisions uh, with, with, with genomics and that kind of stuff. But I definitely know, know my wife is holding out for some kind of an Alzheimer's uh, cure. And it's, um, I subscribe to a Flipboard magazine about genomics. So that's where I, I get some of these kind of things. So remember, if you've got kids that all interested in chemistry or biology, another great career field for the 21st century is going to be continued advancements in, in high-tech medicine. And I will also say too that I, I I'm pretty tempted by the 23andMe stuff. In fact, I um, I probably will use like you know a fake name to do it, but um, I I think it's pretty fascinating. And um, you know, it's it the technology is evolving quickly. Yeah, definitely. Well, you want to pick up another article before we geek of the week? Yeah, um, the the one of these is, is a previous uh, link we 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 pulled over, um, but there's a, a actually no, these are both from today. Never mind. Um, this is about VR and AR. Uh, two interesting headlines. The first one is that uh, Facebook um, has announced today that their Oculus uh, 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 internal company, they had purchased the Oculus Rift Group a couple years ago, um, is offering another VR headset. This one is called the Oculus Go, which is a $199 um, VR headset that it looked a little to me like um, um, uh, uh, kind of similar to like the Google heads- VR headset that, that's been going around, the kind of gray, fabric-looking one. Um, I I don't know enough about it, and the first couple of articles I looked at um, uh, uh, didn't uh, or it wasn't really clear to me what the differential was. I'm assuming at half the price of the Oculus Rift that it's going to be more focused on. Um, you know, a, a form factor that's, that's less tech heavy. The Oculus Rift requires a very substantial PC to be able to perform the virtual reality stuff. But it is interesting that Facebook is, is continuing to innovate in this space, attempting to give, um, a, you know, a $200 option that, that apparently doesn't require the significant, uh, hardware. But I think the bigger headline from today is actually related to Apple announcing, and this is credited to Tim Cook saying that, Augmented reality is not really a possibility right now because good hardware doesn't exist to provide a good augmented reality environment. And I, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly interesting argument to make, especially since that Apple, you know, is kind of used to pushing in this direction, right? Like I would assume if, if Apple's interested in augmented reality, which they appear to be, we've covered several times uh, on this podcast that Apple seems to be extremely interested in augmented reality. But I would assume that if Apple found a problem, they would simply innovate to find the solution, right? They don't release experimental stuff like Google and Facebook and, for example, or for that matter, Amazon tends to release stuff that needs a little bit of polishing or editing to make a high-end product. And the fact that Apple's coming out and saying that they don't believe the hardware exists right now is a pretty stunning statement. Unless Apple's changing the way they do things, right? Um, uh, then that's a pretty stunning statement to say that. And it does echo my own experience. I had the opportunity to utilize one of the Microsoft HoloLenses this summer um, at uh, ISTE. 
And um, it was an interesting experience. I think the technology's got a lot of potential, but it still felt very much, you know, in beta, an experiment to me as opposed to a polished product. And so it's very interesting that that's the case. So, Wes, have you had the opportunity to use like a HoloLens or any other augmented reality platform? You know, I have just barely dabbled. Last Christmas when we were, we went down to Dallas, uh, shopping in the Galleria and, uh, Facebook, it was, I think the first time they've ever done this, had a booth that they set up in the mall there and you could have the Facebook, you know, Oculus experience. And, but it really, you know, there was a dinosaur and I think we looked at some planets and eh, you know, meh. It was, it wasn't, you know, that phenomenal, but, the one that was phenomenal, and I'm trying to see if I can pull up the picture uh, pictures of it, um, uh, was this summer. Uh, Shelly and I went up to the Create, Make, and Learn conference in, <coughs> pardon me, in Burlington, Vermont, and there is a company that has uh, been focusing on smells, and their name. I've got a, a picture here to pull it out. Um, their name has the word Alice and the, the photographs that I have are of my wife doing it because they've partnered with the local university. You kind of might see where this is going that is creating these immersive environments for a, for, uh, for virtual reality, not, not, not augmented, but this is for virtual and, um, they are okay. I'm almost there. Um, you know, adding the, this, the scent, the, the smell element because, um, and I may just have to drop in this, this note if I, if I don't find the actual link here, but, um, a huge part of our sensory perception actually is olfactory. And so they, um, you know, have research and then an amazing demonstration of these different scents that they've pulled out the essence of. And some of them are like the smell of pinyon wood burning on a snowy, you know, wintry day. And they, they have a spray that's a perfume that they put on a card and then they wave it in front of you. And when your eyes are closed, I mean, it's amazing. And even the foods that we, we eat and the things that we drink, they work a lot with really high end, um, restaurants and bars like the four seasons, you know, coming up with new drinks and they augment it with these scents. Anyway, that being put with, with the, the augmented reality, um, certainly we can think about some probably pretty negative, you know, kinds of things, but they, they were, they were partnering with the university and developing that kind of stuff. And so the word that comes to mind is nascent, right? Or very early days, you know, we're at the beginning days of all that. Um, so have, I, I think I would love to see the vir- the, um, augmented reality stuff, um, you know, especially with like ruins of, you know, buildings or places like historical things in the same, same way that we could use layers in Google Earth. And perhaps this has come to the web-based version of Google Maps, you know, where you can see how things have changed over time. Um, being able to visualize that kind of stuff in real time, you know, in, in a, in a place would be, would be pretty cool. But yeah, I, that's a stunning statement from Apple because I tend to think, uh, you know, what else do you need? You know, the smartphone is so good. 12 megapixel camera. Right. Come on. You really think you need a 20 megapixel camera? Uh, so a, a statement like that shows that, you know, we, we haven't seen it all yet. And, you know, what are they going to do when they, you know, it's only a few more exponential, you know, right. doublings, but yeah, that, that there's more to be done with processing power than what we can see today. 
Well, and I would, do want to give a shout out to Ben Wilkoff, who's in our chat room tonight, who says that the augmented reality apps in iOS 11, um, he calls them incredibly convincing. It's really kind of changing the way he looks at those devices. And I do think that that's a, um, it's an important point, right? I mean, when I first start experimenting, it's a strong word here, but when I was showing off augmented reality stuff four or five years ago in context of, of helping teach pre-service teachers at the University of Montana, it was an iPhone and iPad that I was using to be able to do that. Um, I still think that WordLens, which is now part of Google Translate, um, is one, one of the most amazing demos um, ever, right? It being able to take a, a phone, a camera, and put it up to text and have it instantly um, convert to a, a different language is an extraordinary power that... Right. You know, will you know which which is the key of, of of augmented reality to me, right? Like if you could add those pieces there, that's a, a really compelling piece. So I'll, I'll be curious to see where Apple goes with this. Um, you know, the thing about Apple that that I've uh, started learning to do is is that you, you know with the number of employees that they have, you know, not even half of those employees are working on iPhones, iPads, MacBooks, and Mac Pros, right? Like they they have extraordinarily large teams working on things that we probably can't even articulate yet, right? I mean, the... It's like, Dar- it's like DARPA, the, the government, yeah. right? I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they say they're 10 to 20 years ahead yeah. of where we are as consumers. Right. Well, and, you know, one thing that... And I've read some analysis based on this, that one of the things that did happen uh, post-Steve Jobs when Tim Cook took over Apple was that he, he also invested more in some of the... Um, I, I, I would say, you know, like tech development for tech development's sake, right? That there are departments at Apple working on things that have no direct product connection to them, but it's informing things that they do. For example, my understanding is that, uh, Apple still has a massive size battery team that they, that, that there have been small changes they've made in the way, uh, uh, it, devices interface with the battery, but when it comes to just changing the battery itself and what battery technology would do, it's apparently dozens, maybe hundreds, of um uh, of of people working on that at Apple, so so who knows what's going on there? Uh, they could be also throwing people off their scent too, since Apple's turned into kind of a, a leak fest compared to the old days. So who knows? Interesting comments, and I I think we all joined together to say that hearing those from Tim Cook is a, is a pretty extraordinary statement. So certainly something for us to keep an eye on. All right. Well, shall we geek of the week? Yes, let's do. Uh, why don't I start? Uh, mine's not super, uh, 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 super duper challenging or anything to the world, but, um, Facebook, uh, has announced this week that their Messenger Lite app is now available in the United States. Um, Facebook and, uh, Google for that matter has been really working on a number of, uh, interesting, um, applications aimed at uh, uh, developing nations that the folks that can't afford, you know, a thousand dollar Pixel 2 phone, so it doesn't have the processing power, maybe the screen resolution or chip and, and, and RAM of a, a super, uh, high end smartphone. But what I really like about these particular, uh, particular apps is that they also work really nicely on high end devices. So I'm not carrying the, the, the latest and greatest. I myself am utilizing a, a Galaxy Note 4 phone, which is a three year old phone, um, uh, uh, partly because it, it, uh, uh, it allows me to add a super battery. I was actually traveling today and so I have my massive size battery case on my phone today, but, uh, these apps are, 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 are great because they allow you to keep them going, sometimes on in the background. They don't eat as much battery. They, they, they are, they're crisper, even on, on slower phones. 
um, and there are light apps available. And so I would recommend, especially if you're utilizing a, you know, a less than super high end phone and you want to, uh, you know, bring in apps that, that, that feel crisper and speedier, the light apps. There's a Facebook light app. There's a messenger light app. There's a YouTube light app. Um, these are all great ways, I think, to, uh, you make your phone, uh, hum a little more, um, despite the fact that apps are expanding dramatically in size and, 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 in, uh, weight. Uh, which makes it much slower on modern platforms. So that's Messenger Lite available in the Google Play Store. All right. Well, Ben Wilkoff has just contributed in the chat room what, what I think needs to be his, um, his Geek of the Week that we'll give voice to. It's called Teachable Machine. Teachable Machine dot with Google dot com. Teach a machine using your camera, live in the browser, no coding required. And so it's an AI experiment made from, from Google and that looks phenomenal. So there's your homework for this week's episode. Go play with the teachable machine and come back next week and let us know what you have created. Um, my geek of the week relates to the podcasting articles that I mentioned earlier and a alternative for hosting. And the one that I settled on is called Podient, P-O-D-I-A-N-T. Again, shout out to the wonderful Joe Dale who shared that as another alternative. Um, and so I wrote a post night before last um, about different alternatives and, you know, kind of giving a shout out to Audio Boom. Uh, Audio Boom, kind of like VoiceThread, was one of the early Web 2.0 tools that I started to use um, and, and did use it at school, uh, but definitely used it with family members and just. Again, if we would lose this content, I would just be, be terribly, uh, terribly sad. And so, um, my wife needed a hosting platform. And certainly what we do here on the show using Amazon S3 is, it's just too cumbersome. There's too, I mean, we, we've, I've got it, you know, streamlined quite a bit, uh, but it, but it's still, you know, beyond my wife's geek quotient of where she wants to be. So the beautiful thing about Podient, and there's some other uh, tools that support this too, is it has an import fe- feature. So I could simply put in the RSS feed, yes, the wonderful RSS feed, in there, and it doggone pulled every bit of media and meta information. So we're talking, you know, not only the MP3 files, the show art for individual episodes, titles, descriptions, the entire thing, and recreate recreated it on Podium. And, da-da, it's free. You can make donations. And so, actually, i got to sign up. I'm going to just, like, do five, $5 a month. Um, and you can do uh, multiple episodes. So this probably, <coughs> you know, it's it's an example. The, the developer is not advertising and pushing it big. He doesn't want to be huge. Uh, he, you know, kind of just word of mouth social media. But if you're looking to migrate a podcast, I definitely uh, think it's worth uh, taking a look at. And as a result of needing to hunt around for other hosts, um, I updated the radio show page of Show With Media. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes, too, so that's showwithmedia.com and just click radio show. And so um, down about three-fourths of the way, I've got... 10 different hosting options for where you can put your podcast. And so Podient is the first one. Fireside is another one that I learned about uh, from Joe. Uh, some of these I've known about for a while. Libsyn, been around for a real long time um, and a really good choice. Um, Amazon S3 is what we use. Podbean, Podomatic, Anchor, Ruby FM. The developer just tweeted me today and asked me to add that on. And then a, and SoundCloud and one called Buzzsprout. Um, what I will say is that when you make a podcast, uh, like just, just doing a show on YouTube and saying, hey, go watch on YouTube, that's not a podcast. It has to have this 
RSS feed, which makes it subscribable so that you can put it into, if you would want your Apple podcast app. Um, I'm, you know, still a big fan of pocket casts, which is cross platform, but that's where, you know, all of my, my podcasts live and I'm subscribed to them. And so the nice thing about, so Yes, all the podcasts. Um, the nice thing about uh, Podian is it it creates that. So not only does it host it, it creates the RSS feed. And and that was a dream come true because having to take however many episodes and like in the in the case of Audio Boom, that's over two hundred episodes, right? That is an incredibly painful prospect of thinking about getting all that stuff and recreating an RSS feed by hand. And literally, it took ten minutes with Podian. So. Yay, Podient. Big shout out to them. And if I have missed any other podcasting host options that I should include in the list on Show With Media, please let me know. Well, Wes, uh, we have hit the top of the hour plus, so I think we're going to call it a week. Uh, this is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday evening live at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time. We love to have people in the audience. We like involving folks in... Um, uh, their, their, their thoughts and opinions into the show itself. So feel free to join us. Um, we're, we're here almost every week at that Wednesday time. If not, you can find us on Twitter at EdTechSR where we will announce when a particular show will be. But you can find this podcast wherever you find our podcasts are aggregated, which includes the iTunes library, Stitcher radio, the Google podcast directory, directory, um, uh, Spotify were available on as well. So feel free to check us out and subscribe to us to get the episode every single week. If you're interested in the links, you can find those at our website at techsr.com. You can also find teeny tiny MP3 versions of our uh, podcast every week that, that West lovingly turns into a small download. If you happen to have limited bandwidth and want to store them on a phone, or of course you can go to our YouTube channel where we now have 37 subscribers to our YouTube channel. So feel free to, to subscribe to us there and be notified anytime there's a new video posted. Wes, where can people find you on the tubes? I am W Fryer on Twitter, uh, speedofcreativity.org. And we did the rebrand, not because anybody said to do this, but Google Camp OKC is now gcampokc.org. Um, and so uh, I'm excited about that coming up November 4th. And you can follow that hashtag uh, gcampokc for updates around the November 4th conference we're hosting at our school. Awesome. Well, uh, my name is Jason Neifer, and you can find me on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I also blog for the Northwest Can Council for Computer Education. I'm the Tech Savvy Administrative Residence blog.ncc.org. I also help manage social media for them. Or if you want to find out more about uh, virtual schools, uh, I would encourage you to visit um, virtualleadershipalliance.org. And I know that I've said that out loud. I have no idea if that's the domain name or not. Uh, Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance is the name of the organization MTDA is a part of, where we advocate on behalf of state virtual schools, which are institutions that are known nationwide for getting things done. So virtuallearningalliance.org is virtuallearningalliance.org, baby. So, you score. Um, that, and there's a great blog there and lots of interesting information from other state virtual schools that are doing really great work of, across the United States. Thank you for tuning in, whether you did so live or via a, a podcast download or via YouTube. We hope to join us again in the future. Have a great night. <laughs>